Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. Amen. Psalm 115 says, not unto us, not unto us, but unto you. Get the glory. Certainly we come here this afternoon, this hot afternoon, to make sure that Jesus gets the glory. Anybody come to make sure that Christ gets the glory? Come on, you can do better than that. Anybody come to make sure that Christ is getting all the glory? For far, far too long, we've been, we've been glory thieves where we've stolen the glory of God. But he wants glory today and he will not be in competition with you trying to steal his glory. All right, well, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So once you grab your Bibles... We are going to run to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is where we will be. We are continuing on in a journey that we've started a few months ago. Uh, actually, at the beginning of this year, we started to work our way through the book of Romans. And it's been good uh, so far. We are six months into this thing. and God has really been faithful uh, to us. You know, one of the things we try to do and one of our core conviction, convictions as a church is to work through all of Scripture. I said it in the first three services, and it sounds a little bit cliche-ish, but it is the truth. The only thing worse than bad teaching is selective teaching, where we pick and choose what we want to teach and preach from. And one of the things I found out is selective teaching will grow a church, but it will not grow people. You can get an amen from selective teaching, but what grows a healthy church and what grows healthy believers is when we work through all of what the scripture says. When the covenant community class stood up here and I said, as elders, we have a deep conviction to teach the whole counsel of God's word. That's one of the things we desire to see here at Epiphany Church. We want to work through all of what scripture has to say. And if I'm honest, if I could pick and choose what I preach, there'd be some things in Romans I'd skip over. Uh, not because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be intentional to do it, but because some of it's just redundant. Some of it, you just kind of want to move on to something else and you don't always want to preach something that's convicting. You want to preach something that might be uplifting. But I found out it's like your grandmother when you were a kid. She just didn't let you eat cake and donuts, but you had to eat them vegetables. And, and so sometimes when you go through a book of the Bible, there will be things that uh, you'll walk out and you'll say, amen. And then sometimes you'll walk out and you'll say, ouch, like that convicted me. And that's what we get when we work through all of the book of Romans. And so we're going to finish up chapter seven, not today, but by the end of the month. And I had to tweak some things on how we're journeying through this. I said at the end of chapter eight, we'll stop and do some sermon series. But we're actually going to stop at the end of chapter seven, just due to some things that are going on in August. We'll end, uh, we'll end and not end our time, but we'll take a small break from the book of Romans at the end of chapter seven. And we'll get into some, uh, some standalone sermons and certainly some series. In fact, next month, we're doing a series uh, on the church. And, you know, some of the questions that people have about the church, we'll be able to answer those through a four week series. So keep a lookout for that. But in, in the meantime, there's a lot in the book of Romans. So won't you look with me at the first six verses of Romans seven? Y'all good? Listen, I saw y'all fan. If y'all want to get out early, you say amen. And we'll that'll push me along to get you guys out. All right. Romans chapter seven. Somebody said amen already. Y'all so trifling. Verse one, since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, I love I love examples. He gives an illustration here. A married woman is legally bound to her husband 
while he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she marries another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, underline this phrase, she is set free from that law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died. Let me say that again. Since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not the old letter of the law. I simply want to preach this afternoon from these six verses from the topic entitled the power to obey the power to obey. Let's look to the Lord before we dig in. Uh, Lord, we do approach your word with complete reverence. We approach your word with humility, realizing, oh God, that we cannot hear unless you open our ears. And so, Father, pray that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room. Pray that Christ would be glorified in our time, not just through song, not just through the communion, but that Christ would be glorified in our time in your word. So get at us, oh God, today. We need to be challenged. We, we do. We, we, need to, we need you to dig into our hearts and expose functional dysfunction. We need you to dig in our hearts and expose the areas that we've hid from other people. That you, that is laid bare before you, we, we, we need you today to do that. And so, Father, I pray that this would be a message that does spiritual surgery on us. And we, 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 co-sign, we, we sign away our rights today. We, we pray that you would have complete control. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Everybody say amen. The power to obey. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions about the responsibilities and the role of a pastor is that a pastor is responsible only for preaching. And so in, in other words, many people have reduced what a pastor is based on what you see over the next 35 to 40 minutes. And that's, 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 that's a gross mischaracterization of what a pastor actually does. In fact, this, is, this time is 25% of what I do. The other 75% of what I do as a pastor, my roles and responsibilities revolve around managing a growing staff, uh, hospital visits, uh, seeking the Lord and praying to the Lord for direction for our church, studying the word of God. One of the One of the main qualifications of a pastor is that he's able to teach. Therefore, you can't teach unless there's a a specific study time in the word of God. My time outside of the pulpit revolves around praying, 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 and then praying again. It's nothing worse than a pastor that doesn't pray. So my my, my time as a pastor, my roles and responsibilities revolve around managing projects, managing the church budget right now. Uh, be, on my plate is, is a project that is literally a, over a million dollar project that I am invested in and it needs pastoral care. But by far, one of the most time consuming parts of being a pastor, and I'm not complaining, it just is what it is. Most time consuming parts about being a pastor is counseling. Counseling, my office throughout the week is filled with people. It's filled with people that uh, want all types of counseling because that's, you know, that, that's another mischaracterization is that counseling is only one way. There, there's multiple counseling. There's premarital counseling. 
There's postmarital counseling. There's counseling that, that consists of uh, life decisions that you want pastoral guidance. There's counseling that, does, that consists of uh, maybe defending the scriptures. Maybe you walked in and you feel like there's contradiction in scripture, which by the way, there is no, I've read Genesis to Revelation multiple times. There's no contradiction, but sometimes we seemingly have contradictions. And so I'll spend counseling time counseling someone through what the scriptures actually say. But one of the things that I found out in counseling is that one of the most frequent types of counseling I do is counseling that revolves around a specific sin. That person that walks into my office and they're like, I, I, I have this thing that I've been wrestling with and, and nobody knows about it, but I feel comfortable to tell you about it. And, and what, what I found out that in that moment is most times, not all the time, but most times the person that's involved in a deep life of sin feels hopeless. In fact, they feel so hopeless that they will say things like, Pastor, I can't stop sinning. And whenever you say I can't stop sinning, what you've just announced is that sin has a greater grip on you than Christ. When you announce that you can't stop sinning, what, what you are basically saying to me is that there is something deeper theologically that is going on in your life. When you say that I can't stop sinning, what you're saying is that Satan's grip is so strong on you that you will not yield to the ruling and rulership of Christ, but you've submitted to the nature of sin. Ultimately, when you say I can't stop sinning, my next question to you is, are you a believer? The reason I ask it, are you a believer is because it is impossible for a blood-bought believer to feel condemned in a sin and feel like they can never overcome it. Let me help you today. You can overcome that sin. You, you don't have to operate in functional dysfunction. You, don't, you can walk away from that sin. It does not have to reign supreme in your life, but you can overcome that sin. And so saying I can't stop sinning is the same, is the same to me as saying I'm not a believer. Now, now, don't hear me say that the believer is sinless. You're not ever going to be sinless. There will always be. And I think the Lord allows you to walk and go through so that you're constantly kneeling and dependent before him. But even though you'll never be sinless, I can promise you the more you fall in love with Jesus, the less you should sin. You should sin less, but you can't be sinless. And I love Paul because what Paul is going to do today is he's going to show us that you actually have the power to obey God. I know it feels like you've been in that thing long enough and because you've been in it for so long, you can't imagine life without it, but you can walk away from the sin. And what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to really give us three points. If you're taking notes, this is a good moment to take notes. He's going to give us three points that are directly out of the passage. But the three points that he gives us, let me give a quick disclaimer, are not points for you to walk out and say, as long as I obey these points, then I have the power to obey God. In fact, I'll go so far as to say the three points that are straight out of the text have nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. In other words, the power to obey God is, is, is based on God's power, not yours. Because what we've done is we've taken the list and we've walked out and said, I just got to do this list and I'm, me and God are cool. But in reality, what you need is the presence of the spirit. Now, here's the three points if you're taking notes. Number one, you must be set free from bondage. Text is going to say that. Number two, you must be raised to new life. Number three, you must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, none of these is anything you've done. God has the power to set you free from bondage. Okay, let me say it another way. God has the power to raise you to life. 
God has the power to empower you with the Holy Spirit. And so it behooves us to work through all three of these. The first one, you must be set free from sin. And because y'all aren't saying amen, y'all must want to be here longer. So y'all going to make me work and y'all know it's hot. Verse one, since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. She's bound to him. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding the husband. So then if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress. Why? Because she's still bound. But if her husband dies, she is set free from the law. Then if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Uh, last time we were in chapter six together. Paul ended chapter six with the illustration. I don't know if y'all remember this, but he used the illustration of slavery. Do y'all remember that? Where, where he says there's two slave masters. Nobody in here uh, can walk out and say, I'm not in slavery. Everybody in here, I don't care how deep you think you are. You are enslaved to something. You are either enslaved to your sin, which Paul will say in, at the end of chapter six, that that leads to death. Or you're enslaved to Christ and being enslaved to Christ is the only real genuine way you'll experience freedom. We unpacked last time we were together how slavery and freedom actually goes together when Christ is holding it together. Because that is the freest you will ever be when you are enslaved to Christ. And so last time we were together, he talked about slavery, but now he doesn't use the analogy of slavery anymore. He doesn't use the illustration of slavery, but he moves to the illustration of marriage. And I find it interesting that when he finally talks about marriage, first of all, this is the first time he's talked about marriage in all of the book of Romans. He didn't talk about it in chapter one, two, three, four, five, six. But finally, we get to chapter seven and he opens up with an example of marriage. But when he opens up with an example of marriage, I love Paul because he presents to us marriage. He sees marriage as a covenant that is for a lifetime. Okay, y'all didn't say amen. Don't miss this. He doesn't see outing to marriage here. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't talk about divorce. He doesn't talk about separation. He sees marriage. The only way to break the covenant of marriage is death. That, that's what he's presenting us with. And this is so important for us because y'all know we live in a culture that if I'm tired of you, I'll go to City Hall. And when I go to City Hall, all I got to do is write up some paper, give you some money, and I can walk away. But Paul is like, that ain't how marriage was intended. In fact, Paul is just reaffirming what Jesus already said. Do y'all know Jesus at one point in Matthew chapter 19? Won't you turn there real quick? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked, what are grounds for divorce? And his answer shocked everybody. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 19. Y'all there? Okay, y'all just got to catch up. I'm going to keep going because it's hot. Verse number three, look, 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 look at what the Pharisees do. They come to Jesus and they say this. Some Pharisees approached him to test him, talking about Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Look, watch what Jesus says. Haven't you read? He replied that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. I love Jesus because in his answer, he's going to quote Genesis 2, verse 24. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, a lot of times we hear that, let no one separate, and we think of separation that comes from the outside. But even Jesus, like, even y'all together can't separate yourselves. How can you separate yourselves when the two have actually become one? Now, watch their response. They're baffled by Jesus' comments. So they say, why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? Watch what Jesus says. He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. It was not like that from the beginning. In other words, they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I know we got you now. We're going to test you here. Is there any grounds for divorce? Jesus looks at them and says, well, what does Genesis 2 say? Two become one flesh. So no, there's no ground. They're confused by it. So they come back and they say, okay, so then what about Moses? Moses gave us paperwork to be able to divorce the spouse. And Jesus says, Moses only did that because you got a hard heart. And then he goes on to say, it wasn't like that from the beginning, because originally when God created Adam and Eve, it was for a lifetime. And the only way you break the bondage or the covenant was through death. And so if one of them dies, then yes, that person is free to remarry. That person is moved on from the laws. But here in our text, Paul is like, listen, I'm not even talking about, and that's what we've done. Let me pastor the room really quickly, not just married folk, but singles as well. Never go into marriage already thinking of an out. And that's what we've done. We've gone into marriage and, and we, we've walked away without exhausting all the avenues. How are you divorcing somebody? You ain't never had counseling. Nobody ever was brought in to help to restore and to repair that marriage. But what we've done is we've been like, you don't do the dishes. I'm done with you. But Paul is like, only death can break that. You, you don't break that because we have irreconcilable differences. No, you break that when you die or I die. I mean, that's the end of it. And what we've done is we've said, I fell out of love with her. You know how many times my wife probably fell out of love with me? Huh? I got to woo her back in and be like, baby, you still love me? Like... If you think if you think that marriage is all pseudo community, listen, don't let the pictures of the selfies and the duck lips fool you. Marriage is work. Marriage takes a lot of energy. Your wife ain't here. So you saying amen too much. I'm going to call jazz when we leave here. It's work. Listen, this thing takes a lot. Of, and so what we've done is we don't want to work. We just say, I'm going to divorce her. Do you know the divorce rate in the U.S. is above 50 percent? Like one out of two marriages fail. Like apply that stat to anything else. Apply that to flying. If one in two planes fail, would you fly? <laughs> See, this is why we're not getting married. This is why cohabitation is on the rise. Because we, we've looked at marriages and we've looked at the institution and we were like, that don't work. So therefore, let's just be boyfriend and girlfriend for the rest of our lives. But there is something beautiful in marriage. There is something beautiful in oneness. It shows us the beauty of the Trinity. It shows us how God is three in one. Shows us unity. And what we've done is we've gotten into hard times. And instead of surrounding ourselves with people that can help, we've said, I'm out. Now, now don't hear me say that there aren't there aren't reasons for you to divorce. Yeah, yeah, Moses gave us an outing because of the hardness of our hearts, but there are some stuff that you do got to walk away from. Don't ever hear me say, if you are being physically abused, you should stay in that marriage. Don't ever hear me say, if you are being mentally abused, you should stay in that marriage. If your husband or your wife abandoned you, 
and your husband ran away with the babysitter, you don't have to legally stay in that marriage. But that's what we've done. We've looked at dysfunction and we've said, I'm going to stay in it. So don't hear me. Even though I'm saying there's no outing, what I'm what I'm basically saying is that the original intent of marriage was for lifetime. But there are some moments where the unfaithfulness doesn't stop. There's no repentance and that there's no path towards faithfulness in that marriage. There are some moments that but even then you got to talk to somebody. Somebody needs to counsel you through that. And so we've made divorce a biblical norm. We've we've made divorce too palatable. We've made it too easy. All we got to do is take the train down to the city hall and walk in and then we're done with it. But that's not how this thing works. Only death can break the covenant. And and so I, I love this idea because the question you should be asking is who has to die? Now, in the text, he gives us an illustration. This isn't real. He's saying there's a husband, there's a wife, and and the wife is legally bound to that husband unless the husband dies. What's interesting is the husband in the text represents the law. The husband represents the law, and he says what what Christ is saying is if if death takes place, you are no, no longer bound to the law. But even though verses one through three, his illustration the husband dies in his explanation in verse four, it is the wife that dies. In other words, you might be sitting here going, who has to die? If it's the law that has to die, that's not the case because Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And so it's not the law that dies. It's you that has to die. You have to die to your flesh. And I I would, I would argue and say death to your flesh isn't a one-time event but it's a rhythm of life. Every morning, you got to say, God, can you crucify this thought? Can you crucify? See, oh, y'all just leave the house. See, I got to say, God, I'm pleading with you. There's sin out there. There's temptation out there. Some of you ain't even got to leave the house. My laptop, there's sin on it. There's temptation on it. And what you need is death. Every blood-bought believer has to walk around with a coffin. And that coffin you're walking around with is, is, is resemble, it resembles your old life. And so he says, listen, the only way you are set free from the law is that you got to die. And the death that takes place now gives you under new management. And the new management isn't your flesh, but it's management to Christ. Paul says something slick in the last chapter. In chapter six and verse 14, he says, sin will not rule over you because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. In other words, he, he's saying, see, the reason we're not sacrificing animals anymore because we're not under the law. The reason I'm not up here and I got a sheet that, you know, this is Levitical law. You wave the sheet out the window and be like, I don't have a virgin. You can stone her. The reason we don't do that is because we're not under the law, but under grace. The reason you can wear two mixed cloths. Do you know that's a Levitical law? You can't wear two stitchings of different cloths. But the reason that you can sit in here with your cute shirt on is because you're not under the law, but you are under Grace, but even though you're not under the law, don't hear me say you're able to be lawless. In other words, you can't walk out of here and live in utter anarchy. You can't walk out of here and be a grace abuser. You, even though you are under grace, if you fall, God has created grace to catch you. But even with that, see, no real believer abuses grace. Like if you, if you abuse, if you look at grace as a license to sin, the question I ask every counselee, I'm asking you today, are you a believer? Because believers don't look at grace as a license to sin. We fall to our knees and say, thank you. You didn't kill me when I did that. 
Thank you, you didn't cut me off when I messed up, but you've created this mechanism called grace. And so we have to die. There's no way to break the bondage that we're in unless death takes place. But I would argue you don't just have to die according to verse four. You have to be raised to new life. That's point number two. Point number two is you must be raised to new life. And I would add to this raised to new life and bear fruit. Look at verse four with me. Y'all still with me? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you were also put to death in relation to the law. Through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him. Here it is. Who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. It is not enough just to die, but you have to be raised to the newness of life because being raised to the newness of life is the only way you'll bear fruit. In in other words, the people that are around you should see the fruit on your life of the gospel. That the people closest to your trifling boss should see the fruit of the gospel smeared on your life. Your family members should see the gospel smeared on your life. That is basically fruit. I know you're sitting there going, Pastor, what, what, what does fruit actually look like? Well, there's a list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, self-control, self-control. See, that's why I'm laughing when people say, I can't stop sinning and you ain't got self-control. And you don't have self-control because you haven't died. And because you haven't died, you haven't had the ability to be raised to new life, to bear the fruit of self-control. See, you think you need accountability. Now, don't hear me talk against accountability, but accountability alone will not help you. You need fruit. You need to be raised to new life. And, and that you cannot be raised until you die first. It's like my wife. She, she loves to, she gardens in the back and she, she gets plants and sometimes she gets fruits as she grows. She's grown sweet potatoes so far in the back. She's grown tomatoes and basil and rosemary and tomatoes. What, what'd you say? Amen. <laughs> she, and we, we've, cut, we've cut it up and we've, we've, we've enjoyed the, the fruit, the, the produce that she's planted. But here, here's what I found out about seed time and harvest. In order to get to the season of fruit, you have to take that seed and do what? You got to bury that thing. It has to go into the ground or else it, if you walk around with the seed in your hand, it will not produce fruit. But what you get fruit later on starts with death. It starts with burying it. And some of you in here want to just walk around and profess faith in Jesus Christ, but you haven't died. You, you haven't died to your old self. Your old nature is still ruling and reigning over you. But what you need is to go into the ground. You, you need death because That's where we get fruit. You think you just get fruit because you profess faith. You get fruit when you profess faith and die to your old self. And that's all fruit is, man. Fruit, you know, the the seed time and harvest, the process to the seed growing takes longer than the harvest. Now, let me let me try to make this plain. Whenever you plant the seed, you know how long it takes for that thing to to root up and, and to bear fruit. But once you get the fruit, you know how quick that fruit spoils? Hey, I bought bananas last week and they brown and they got them flies around. How, where do them flies come from, by the way? Do they come out the fruit? Like, they just appear out of nowhere. But, but what happens is that banana that spoiled two weeks later started out as a seed in the ground. Do you know how long it took us to get to the point where we could get fruit? 
And so what we do is we don't like the process of being buried because, again, we think it's a one-time event, but the process of being buried is that every day it's a lot of maintenance. When I watch my wife in the back uh, uh, doing that soil, she's rooting it up and she's watering it and she's moving the plants in the sun, moving them back in the shade. It's a process. And many of you don't want to work. You would just rather say, I profess faith, but what does your life look like? Have you died to your old self? Have you died to your old nature? And so in other words, the only way you are released from the bondage is death. The only way you are raised up to bear fruit is after death has taken place. And I know what you're doing. You're sitting here going, Pastor, this sounds cute. This sounds good. But, but in reality, that sounds like it's impossible to do by myself. And it is impossible to do by yourself. But what I love about Christ is when you trusted in Jesus, if you leave here now, you're not leaving here alone. You're leaving here with God inside of you. Okay, that's the third point. First point is you must be set free from bondage. The only way to be set free is death, according to the text. You must be raised. This is point two. You must be raised to new life. The only way to be raised to new life is after death to bear fruit. And then finally, point number three, and I would say probably the most important is you must be empowered with the presence of the Holy Spirit. You think accountability alone will do it. It's not just accountability. What you need is the ghost with you. You need the Holy Spirit operating in your life. Look at verse number six. I'm not making this up. It says, but now we have been released from the law since we have died. There it is to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit. What you need most in your life in order to have the power to obey God is the Spirit's work in your life. And I don't know how the Spirit does you, but sometimes the Spirit just be talking plain to me. He'd be like, when you walk down the street, don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. You, you ever? I said to the left. That's the right. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. It's your left, though. When you're walking through life, you need to be so in tune with the spirit. And see, that, that's what I love about the spirit. You know, sometimes the spirit will speak and be like, uh-uh, no, don't mess with that temptation. I know she look cute. I created her. But you shouldn't walk down that path because down that path is death. I know he look nice and I know he treats me nice, but it's just not the right relationship for me. Did the Holy Spirit ever speak to you like that? But see, what we do is we ignore the Holy Spirit because we want temporary enjoyment. Temporary, we choose temporary enjoyment instead of following the Spirit. When that thing is tempting you, when that thing is calling you like Pookie in New Jack City, when that thing is calling you and you got that ugly face and you, you want to dive into that sin, the Spirit got to say, uh-uh, Galatians 5, 16 says, for I say walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We gratify the desires of the flesh because we ignore the Spirit. You walk through the professing believers. We walk through life and we think we're smarter than God. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is God? Like the Holy Spirit ain't like the, the stepchild of the Trinity. He, he, he's, he's, not, he, he's not like some mystical force that's only used for, for tongues. The Holy Spirit is God living inside of you. But we've taken God to atmospheres that we would never take our mother you take God to atmospheres that you know you shouldn't be in. And what happens is you're not being empowered by the spirit. Some of you, you that's why when you say I can't stop sinning, I'm like one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. That the spirit should overtake you and therefore you should be able to walk away from that sin. 
Being empowered to this, by, by the Spirit is not, again, it's not just a one time, it's not just the moment you profess faith in Jesus. Something interesting happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is in the upper room with 120 disciples. And the Bible says that Peter is filled with the Spirit. But if you read Acts chapter 4, Peter is filled again with the Spirit. Why is he filled again? Was the first time not good enough? He's filled again because as you operate through life, it has to be constant fillings. As you go through life, God has to constantly fill you up with the spirit. But we've ignored what God is filling us up with. And some of you are on the ropes. You're getting beat down by that sin. That thing is conquering you. You're in the ring by yourself. You're about to get knocked out. There's a one-two punch and you sitting on the ropes. But, you know, I saw this interview with Mike Tyson in this interview. Uh, it, it first showed the, uh, the weigh-in. Y'all know what the weigh-in is? Before they fight, they get together and they, they have that mean grill and they stare each other down and people are taking pictures. And in the weigh-in, they ask Mike Tyson's opponent. I love Mike Tyson. In the ring, Mike Tyson. Not out the ring, Mike Tyson. In the ring, Mike Tyson. There's a moment in the weigh-in where they ask his opponent, how are you going to beat the world champion? He, he said, it's, it's easy. I got a plan. And so they get into the ring and Mike Tyson literally knocks him out in less than a minute. And after Mike Tyson knocks him out, the interviewer asked Mike Tyson, they said, what happened? He had a plan. And, and Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until I punch him in the face. And that's what sin does. You got a plan to obey God, but sin punches you in the face. And every time it punches you in the face, you ain't got power to fight back. But I feel like somebody is getting their power today. Like somebody's chains are, are being loosed and your shackles are being loosed. The bondage that you were held to is being loosened. And I, I genuinely believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking right now in the, in, the, in the second service. In the middle of this moment, literally something started blasting out of the speakers. And I was like, see, the devil's a liar because he, he wants to distract you. But today, hear me, don't let tomorrow be the day that you figure this thing out. You've lived in it too long. It's been too much dysfunction. And here's the reality. Some people don't know about it. You, you, you've gone through life and been able to fool those closest to you. But here's who you never fool. You never fool God. You never fool God. And I, I, would, I mean, I dread that day for you if you haven't trusted in Jesus where you stand before him and you're condemned in your sin. But you can switch masters today. And the way you switch masters today is death. Every head bowed and every eye closed. There is somebody in here that is in need of the Spirit's power. You think you're strong enough? You're not. You, you, you think you're able to control sin? You're not. It's, it's almost like that video where somebody's sitting with a bunch of lions and he's petting them. At some point when that lion's hungry, it's going to eat you. That's the way we do sin. We've treated sin as though we can manage it. When in reality, the Bible never called you to manage sin. It calls you to take the lion out to the street and kill it. Some of you in this room have been bound for years. And I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for everybody in the room. I believe you're working now in their hearts. I believe you're speaking to them right now. Father, if they leave here today, that man, that woman tries to control sin, but you pray that you would remind them of this verse, that death is the only way out of bondage.
to remind them of this verse, that they need to be raised to the newness of life and bear fruit? Would you remind them of this verse, that they are in desperate need of the Spirit's working? Father, forgive us, O God, for taking your Holy Spirit in places that are not conducive for growth. But help us to be more in tune with you. Some, Some of us, every time one of our brothers and sisters ask us how we're doing, it's always a story of how we're under our old selves. So Father, would you release them today to trust you? Would you release them today to be in tune with your spirit? Ultimately, I guess what I'm praying for is repentance and sanctification. Repentance today. Help them to realize that tomorrow is not promise. They, they literally can walk out and die today. I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's true. This life is fleeting. Your word says that it's like a vapor. It's here today and gone today. So Father, I pray, oh God, that you would put them in the place that you would spiritually arrest them today. See, one of the things I love, oh God, about your salvation is it ain't up to us anyway. If you want us, we're yours. We can run, but your grace is irresistible. Your salvation is irresistible. So Father, I pray, oh God, for that one that came in here today and thought they were just coming because they liked the music and the community, but you got them today. So Father, would you do a work in their lives? At the end of the day, we just want to walk with you, oh God. We want to submit to your counsel. So be with us, oh God. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen.